Today's very special uh, World Championship-centric episode of the Velo's Podcast, brought to us by VeloSwap, the world's largest used bike expo and swap, and it is coming up here on Saturday, November 2nd, held in Denver, Colorado at the National Western Complex. And tickets are on sale now. In fact, if you go to velonews.com right now, we have a banner at the top of the page where you can click through and buy your tickets to uh, attend VeloSwap as a buyer or to attend it as a seller and sell all of that bike gear that has just been stuffing up your closet and your garage. Take it on down to VeloSwap and sell it. Uh, VeloSwap... (laughs) It's one of my favorite days of the year. It is a smorgasbord of used bike parts. Imagine walking into an exhibition hall as far as the eye can see, and in it is just used bike parts, wheels, frames, shifters, stuff from the 80s. If you're a collector, you can find some of that cool old Sun Tour stuff. Uh, Great jerseys. A lot of times I will post some of my favorite and ugliest jerseys that I find at VeloSwap online. Uh, anyway, it's a joy for all. So VeloSwap, coming up here Saturday, November 2nd. Get your tickets now on VeloNews.com. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the VeloNews Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you a little later in the week. Uh, this week's episode is focused entirely on the World Championships, and we uh, are a little late getting to it because I wanted to watch the Women's Elite Individual Time Trial, and boy, am I glad that we did that because, uh, boy, just a couple hours here, uh, we watched Chloe Digert owen smash the Women's TT to win the uh, Rainbow Jersey, and just... I mean, it seemed like she was in another race. She won by a minute and 32 seconds ahead of Anna Vandebregen, who, you know, Anna Vandebregen, she's, it's, it's Anna Vandebregen. She's the Olympic champion, reigning world road champion, just, you know, a class athlete. And, uh, Chloe smashed her. So we're going to talk all about that race. We're going to preview the men's and women's road races coming up. And with me today to talk about worlds is, of course, Andrew Hood. Andy, we are again uh, reduced to watching these races from the couch. We have our man Jim on the ground. Uh, It was a short drive. Uh, But watching today, I mean, what's standing out to you about this uh, world up there in Yorkshire in Harrogate? Puddles. Puddles everywhere. Puddles for my friends. Puddles for my neighbors. Puddles for the kingdom. It was uh, a rainy day. I mean, forecasting this week, Fred, calls for quite a bit of rain up there in the highlands. I don't think that's a big surprise for anybody who's been in that part of uh, England before. But we saw today the the U23 race really get impacted by some of those pedals. Saw a couple of those really just, you know, incredible crashes. We saw a few guys go down in pretty horrendous conditions. But great start by the U.S. team, uh, close to medals yesterday in the junior races. Today, the gold medal and a, a silver and a bronze by Ian Garrison and Brandon McNulty in the U23 men's race. Great to see that the American time trial tradition is continuing. Looks like we have a, uh, a nice uh, successor to Kristen Armstrong here budding with uh, Chloe Daggered Owen. Yeah, I was just looking at the record book there for women's elite time trial. And look, you know, we've written about this before about how American women have over the years 
had a tradition of excellence in the individual time trial. Um, Amber Nieben won the world championships just three years ago in Doha. That was her second world title. Kristen Armstrong, three-time Olympic champion in the discipline, also had two world titles. Mari Holden won the world title in 2000, the same year she was silver at the Olympics. And then I believe it's Karen Couric won the inaugural uh, time trial, an American back in 1994. So Chloe is just following in the footsteps of American women who are awesome at time trials. And, you know, there's there's a number of reasons for this. I've, I've written about this before and talked to some coaches, Jim Miller and some others about this. And, you know, it's one of these things where when you have excellence, then it kind of excellence begets excellence and that you you learn the tricks of really good riders and you build up coaches and infrastructure around events to do it well. But also just the um, the style of racing, I remember, was it was something that, that came out to me, which was like a lot of these stage races that we have here tend to have these long time trials. And so the women who were going to be very good North American stage racers had to be good time trialists. Um, but yeah, as we saw, Chloe just absolutely crushed it. And it came after this under 23 men's race that, like you said, Andy, it was just, I mean, it looked like they were at a water park out there. There's a clip floating around online of this poor Danish kid. Um, I'm looking for his name right now. I mean, he just rides into this puddle that swallows his front wheel and he catapults into it like he's at a wave pool <laughs> at a water <laughs> park. And then, of course, since it's the internet, uh, some great people on Twitter have created these memes of him where it looks like he's like crashing into a hurricane zone or like going down a water slide. I mean, poor kid. He, it seemed like he was, he was okay. But uh, yeah, was was definitely pushing the limits of the foul weather protocol. But sounds like no one... No one raised Kate. No one. No one raised a, a stink about it. Yeah, no one's going to stop a U twenty three rider from racing on race day for the worlds. They were keen on racing. I think, uh, you know, like I said before, I think they could have done a better job in marking some of those hazards on the course. And you have to remember, you know, the UCI organizes this race. Local organizers kind of handle logistics on the ground. But it's kind of it shows to me a little bit, uh, you know, the difference of say the UCI, whom organizes really this one race. I mean, they do a few other events throughout the year, but you know, that's not their specialty. Their specialty is measuring socks. We saw that uh, <laughs> me, meme go out there. That very important sock height was a very critical issue. They, they're good at measuring socks, testing uh, bike weights, and doing the rest of their uh, – you know, the, the big issue this year at the Welter was they're issuing fines almost every day for people throwing out trash beyond the official designated trash zone. So it's important to realize that the USA have their priorities straight. But, uh, you know, it's in contrast to, you know, the ASO and these kind of race organizers that do this day in, day out. Not to say they don't have their problems. We've seen plenty of uh, problems with the, the big race organizers. But racing on opens roads, man, it's going to happen. This bizarre stuff. That's why cycling is the way that it is. Uh, but I still think that uh, kind of a yellow card for the organization, both at the UCI and, uh, and the local organizers, for not marking those hazards better, better than they should have. So let's dig into this U23 race, first of all. What I love about U23 and Junior World Time Trial Championships is that you can go back and look at the results from some of these races and see stars of the future really doing well. You see it in the road race too, but sometimes I feel like the lower category road races tend to be a bit of a lottery and some of the winners tend to be just, you know, it's not it's not winning by luck, but it's not as much of a skill and physiology-based thing where it's – if you look back at the time trial results, I mean like Fabian Cancellara was crushing time trials as U23. Uh, Marcel Kittle 
I believe he was on the podium a few times at U23 in the time trial. It's really a test of who's – a show of who's going to be awesome. So – Of who has the motor, right? Yeah. Who has the natural motor? Who has the, want it? Yeah. Who has the natural motor? And so, Mikkel Bjerg from Denmark won his third consecutive world title in uh, this event. And I've had people tell me, like, watch out. This is the next Cancellara. This is the next – not just time trial ace, but like – classic sky cobblestone crusher maybe even like week-long stage race you know like a guy who could win a tirreno um just a really versatile rider so it was exciting to see him take the win but god hoodie i gotta say another usa usa moment as uh brandon mcnulty who was a junior world champion a few years ago uh finishes third place and ian garrison finishes second place um, Ian is a guy who has been on our radar for a number of years because he was, I believe, sec- he made it onto the podium at uh, U23 Gent-Wevelgem a few years back, which is another really hard race, that's sort of a race of the future. But uh, this year, he didn't just win the U23 National time trial. He won the U23 Pro time trial as well. And when you see a result like that for a young guy of his age, I think he's 21, 22, I mean, that's sort of a, that's a head turner where you're like, oh. Holy cow. Look at watch out for this kid. Yeah, it's good to see we have some young talent coming up in the United States on the men's side. I mean, the the women's side's consistently produced uh, quality riders, but it seems like we're in kind of a drought here on the men's side. Not to say that the riders that are in the elite peloton right now are not very good professional riders getting solid results, but, you know, American Cycling needs that big winner, the rider who can kind of get people excited about grand tours and about uh, stage racing results. We'll see if uh, one of these guys can develop into some of that talent that uh, I think the American fans are uh, waiting to see. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing is that so McNulty, he is definitely on the trajectory towards stage racing and grand tours. Um, he's a great time trialist. He's also a great climber. We saw him, um, I think, top 10 a couple years back on um, Gibraltar Road at Amgen Tour, California. He's going to UAE Team Emirates, and um, it sounds like they're pretty bullish on him of molding him into uh, a stage race guy and a Grand Tour guy. Garrison's different. Uh, he said in his post-race interview that he doesn't know what his plans are going to be next year, whether he will stay with Hoggins Berman Action, which, you know, Hoggins Berman Action next year is taking a step down from the Pro Conti to the continental level, which means less international competition, uh, or whether Ian will go and sign a, a world tour contract. Um, he is definitely more in the mold of a Hincapi and a classics guy. I mean, he can time trial very well, but he's also uh, a really good one day racer. So it's exciting to see him getting this level of success at the international level. And I guess it's just one of those, you know, write those names down. I mean, our listeners probably had McNulty's name down, but write Ian Garrison's name down too, because you're going to see him in, in some big races coming up here in the future. Yeah, tell us, uh, you've been doing quite a bit of reporting recently, Fred, on uh, Chloe. Uh, tell us her background story. I mean, I know she's been around the sport for quite a while, but like you said, 22 and just blowing the wheels off everybody in that time trial today. Yeah, this uh, this ride by Chloe is significant for a couple different reasons. Um, the first is that it is um, her first elite Time, uh, world championships on the road. So he, she raced worlds in 2015 in the juniors on the road, won the time trial and the road race. And that was sort of our big, you know, wow, 
look at this gal. She's really talented. Um, sort of her welcome to the welcome to the big stage. And USA Cycling was smart, and they saw her and the power that she was able to put out and put her on the track because they knew that with Sarah Hammer, uh, they had a good opportunity to build a uh, team pursuit squad that could challenge for Olympic medals, and it did. And um, Chloe was the anchor rider of that team in um, 2016 in Rio, and they got silver. They won three world championships after that. Chloe then continued uh, on the track and won. I believe two or three individual world championships as well. But, you know, in the interviews that I would do with her at that time, I was always asking her about road racing. Hey, you know, you're crushing it on the track. You have this trajectory on the track, winning world titles. But, like, do you ever want to go back and do road racing? Should you see yourself doing European races, cobblestone classics, world, stuff like that? And she always said, yeah. And, like, the, the great thing about Chloe is that she just she's a great quote, pulls no punches, isn't afraid to be cocky. I remember her saying stuff like, yeah, I think I could win you know, Tour of Flanders. I think I could win some of these big races. You know, I feel like I have the, the engine and the motor. Um, but her focus on the track kept her from really um, doing too much at Road Worlds. Or if she did, she'd sort of parachute in for the time trial. But, you know, she wouldn't focus on it with the level of training that she would have for track. Um, and so for her to come out and crush it and just like, like I said, it would seem like she was in a completely different race is confirmation that, yeah, wow, you know, she would be an amazing road racer. The second piece is that, and we've covered this a lot on the site, is that this whole 2019 year has been this comeback year for her because in 2018 at the Tour of California, she crashed, had a concussion. I mean, it was a scary crash. It was a pileup. The the bunch was coming into a sprint. There was, you know, grabbing of the brakes that bunched up. She said she wasn't super confident in the bunch and just she went down and hit her head. And that kept her off the bike for months. And when she came back, then she had some other injuries. I mean, it was just it was just this series of setbacks over the course of an entire season. And she didn't race on the track. She didn't race on the road. Um, she told me that she had real doubts during this time whether she'd ever get back to that level again. And throughout 2019, we saw her do a domestic road racing calendar and win Joe Martin and win some of these stage races and you know, start to make it back and look pretty good. The Tour of California, she was okay. Um, at Nationals, she was second place to Nieben in the time trial. It was a good but not great. And um, I talked to her right before she was – as she was en route to Worlds and she said that this whole season she's just been building up physically to try and get back to that level that she had as a track racer. And she finally got to that point after a track training camp in July – and she had this training session and uploaded her numbers to her her uh, computer, which her coach, Kristen Armstrong, yes, that Kristen Armstrong, like, I guess, looked at the numbers and was like, whoa, okay, she's back. Called Chloe, said, Chloe, you're back. And then Chloe went and did Pan Ams, won the time trial. And then we, you know, we talked about this the other day uh, after the Coors Classic, where she was just riding people off her wheel, winning four stages in the overall at the, at the Coors Classic. So that was, you know, we all saw that and we're like, okay, she's she's crushing it at this domestic race, but how does that translate to international racing? And hoodie, ah, I think we saw, I think we saw how that translated because she, her average speed was like twenty seven miles an hour. I mean, at one point she was basically as fast as Brandon McNulty through the first like I think half or two thirds of the race. I mean, it was like I said, it was like she was in a different race. That's impressive. Uh, do you know, Fred, she's going to be. Staying on the road going into Tokyo next year or is she going to go back to the track? Yeah, so that that's the other part of it is that her success on the road 
it opens up opportunities. It's also going to force her to make some decisions. Um, when I talked to her, she said, hey, look, my, my plan right now is no road race in Tokyo, but road time trial in Tokyo and then the track races. Mm. And, you know, they have to figure out if they're going to do another women's pursuit team. Um, they lost two riders from the last go around. Sarah Hammer retired and Kelly Catlin um, killed herself and it, you know, it's huge setback. I mean, it's a very sad story, a huge tragedy and big setback for the team. And they've been slotting other riders in to see whether they can replicate that speed. And if they can, then I think Chloe is a shoe in to be on that team, but she also might compete in some of the individual races on the track as well. I mean, I mean, it's sort of, uh, when you're that talented and that good, you just kind of have to choose what you want to do kind of like, I mean, hoodie, like for us in our lives, you know, I mean, it's just like the world <laughs> just is do your, everything. Yeah, just do everything. World is your oyster. <laughs> imagine, being, <laughs> imagine being 22 years old and being so good at something that it's like, yeah, just kind of pick what you want to do. And there's a good chance you will contend for an Olympic gold medal in that. That's how, that's how it must be for Matthew Vanderpool, which we'll talk about shortly. Yeah. He's just good at everything. It sounds like some Chloe is from that same ilk, that same just naturally talented on the bike and, you know, put her on a put her on a uh, pogo stick. She'll probably be pretty good as well. Yeah. And she, look, she's hyper competitive. She loves to talk about, oh, I get pissed off when I'm playing a board game. And even if a little kid get like beats me at Monopoly, I'm like pulling my hair out. Um, she talks about how she trains so hard on the turbo trainer that she throws up and the coaches have to put a trash can next to her. And, you know, in talking with Gary Sutton, her track coach i mean he's told me like you know we look at the numbers that she's putting up in some of these training sessions and we look at the wattage that she's generating and everyone kind of scratches their heads and just goes whoa you know like whoa we have not seen that before so that that speaks to otherworldly talent and she obviously has the competition to drive and she's only 22 that speaks to chloe having the potential to be the most decorated American cyclist ever for being the young female cyclist that, you know, becomes the the person to rebuild the base of American cycling. I mean, like, it's not just about winning. It's like the potential for her in American cycling is huge. And for her, you know, for American cycling marketing around her, for the sport using her as a, as a person to get new people into the sport. I mean, um, She's already this legend with all these track accolades, but this this road accolade, this road world championships, really speaks to you know potential big things, hoodie. I'm I'm excited. I kind of have to pinch myself and maybe say, okay, slow down here, you know. But um, you know the potential's there. Yeah, it sounds exciting times. It kind of turns it up to eleven, as they say. <laughs> yeah, she dials it up to eleven for sure. I mean, some of these clips. From the time trial championships, like speeding past some of these contenders, you know, she's just she's just going to different speeds. She caught the gal who started seven minutes ahead of her. <laughs> That's the way I feel when I do a time trial. Of course, being live, you know, being gapped by my seven minute man. Well, that leads us into the the time trial race on Wednesday with the men. Kind of some buzz there about uh, Remco. 19 years old, could be one of the favorites to win. Got Rowan Dennis, angry Rowan, back from the Tour de France. Hasn't raced since then, since his uh, angry uh, bandit of the race. 
I haven't really got quite to the bottom of that story out of really what happened there. Some questions about uh, equipment and preparation, and he said he was going to leave anyway. And but Roland Dennis is back. We got uh, Pruma Roglic. A few other guys are there. Kampernerts, uh, uh, Belgian has a strong team, so going to be a good race. A couple of big names are missing from the time trial. Uh, Garrett Thomas is not there. Of course, of course Dumoulin and Froome are both injured, so it should be a pretty interesting race for the men's time trial. Yeah, I love. The men's individual time trial because, you know, every now and again you get – well, like you, you have the Cancellaras and the Tony Martins, the guys who year in, year out are going to win it and rack up multiple championships. But then you have some of these years – I wouldn't call them off years because, I mean, Rowan Dennis is a class rider. But some of these years where there's no like outright favorite and you're like, you know – Vasil Kirienka might win it this year. I mean, he he won it a couple of years back. You have some of these years where just because, hey, the race is at the end of the season, people are injured, people are tired, um, it opens the door for a uh, a new rider to win. So I kind of I'm kind of hoping that we see a new rider, maybe a Chad Haga, maybe uh, someone who we don't like, who's not an A plus favorite, win it. I'd I'd like to see that. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right about that because at the end of the season, it all depends a lot on. Uh, where the rider was in terms of, uh, you know, if they're coming off the tour and they had a break and trying to rebuild or if they did a, you know, kind of a, uh, a Giro Welta combination, the Welta riders might be kind of tired, especially guys like Roglic who had to go pretty deep. I mean, Roglic was second two years ago to Dumoulin in, in Norway. A lot of question marks about him. He obviously crushed it in the time trials all year on paper. He's the favorite, but, you know, is Primo really going to be as sharp as he normally is after that hard effort? But yeah, you do see the uh, one-offs, you know, kind of, uh, Bizarre uh, winners like Akarienka, you know, Jonathan Castroviejo from uh, Spain is a guy kind of like that. Or uh, like I said, Chad Hagen, Lawson Craddock. Obviously, uh, Lawson had a great Welta. His results didn't quite really represent his his uh, performance of that Welta. I think he had four top tens out of breakaways, but he is in really great form. So I think uh, both of those guys could pop a surprise. I think so too. I mean, I do think – Rowan Dennis is the odds-on favorite here. He hasn't raced since the Tour de France. He's obviously, I, I would assume, he's been training very um, intently on this race. And you know, you know, there hasn't been a ton written and reported and fit for print about what happened with Rowan Dennis. But the scuttlebutt, and look, it's it's the podcast, so we're going to talk about some of I would just sort of the the rumors that have been flying around in the scene about what happened. As you may remember, Rowan Dennis climbed off his bike. And uh, abandoned the Tour de France mysteriously at the midpoint. And, you know, some of the information that's come out of that, about that, at least in the rumor mill about what people are talking about, is that it is because he wanted to race uh, a non-sponsor bike and or just use non-sponsor equipment for the following day's individual time trial because he wanted to win. And what we're hearing is that the team Bahrain Merida said, no, man, you got to use the, use the, the sponsor stuff. And uh, that was that created a rift, and, and he got off his bike. Now, the, what I've been hearing, and I, I believe this has been reported, is that he is going to race a non-sponsor bike for the time trial. So he is going to be using not a Merida bicycle for the time trial. Which, you know, some of these guys they're 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 meticulous, man. Time trial is about cheating the wind, about getting every second where you can. And if Rowan Dennis thinks that he has a better shot at winning on a non-sponsored bike, um, you know, seems like he's gotten his way. 
Yeah, we, in fact, I think uh, Leonard Zinn had a column about that on the Velo News website uh, this week about you know the history and tradition there of riders, you know, especially back in the day when the new carbon bikes were coming onto the scene, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that uh, you know they they would just uh, ride their preferred equipment and just paint it up as a, as a you know whatever the, the team sponsor was, and that's that's always been a, an issue in the history of the sport, really. Like riders prefer their own kind of stuff. I mean, as you know, elite athletes are, are very quirky about their gear, almost super sometimes, especially if they know something works for them, they don't want to change, especially if something as big as a Tour de France uh, time trial stage, which basically is the highlight for Rowan Dennis the entire season, or the world time trial race. So uh, I, know, I know he's had some disappointments with uh, equipment failures in the past. I know in Rio, he had some handlebar problems, bar extender problems that probably cost him a medal there. So I think all that added up to be really a, a, a kind of a boiling point for him at this tour. And you know, he even admits he, he, he's an angry young man. He's, <laughs> he proudly states it. And I did an interview with him uh, two years ago or last year at the Tour Down Under and just asked him, like, hey, you know, Ron, you know, the, the word is you're quite an angry young man. And he started to laugh about it and uh, told some funny stories about how um, back when he was in high school, uh, one of his teachers said, hey, Rowan, you know, give up on this bike thing. You're wasting your time. If you if you just keep doing this bike thing, you're going to end up working at a gas station. And I guess Rowan just blew up and told the guy to stick it where the sun doesn't shine and got kicked out of school for a couple of days because he was so mean to his professor. <laughs> and he said – you know, he's had kind of run-ins like that with teammates, with uh, directors and managers and coaches over the years. But, uh, you know, he can turn that anger and turn it into the pedals. And we've seen, of course, many stories in the history of cycling of where that anger and that, that mental edge is, sometimes pushes you over the edge to success. But it also can backfire if you can't learn how to control it. Uh, you know, we've seen other riders have, have issues with that, like Andrew Talansky, back when he was racing, would get very, you know, very fiery and intense. But if you can't rein that in, it can cost you, and it cost him a chance to maybe win a stage of the Tour de France this year because he got mad and he walked off his bike and didn't race the next day. Yeah, and when I heard, you know, and again, it's not proven, it hasn't been confirmed, but that um, the rift may have been over equipment. One thing that came to mind was, you know, I bet there are some riders out there in the pro peloton that have the juice, that have the power to be able to pull something like that off, you know, to be able to say, hey, I don't want to use the sponsor equipment. I'm a big deal. I'm Peter Sagan. I'm, you know, whoever, Tom Bonin, let me do what I want. And Rowan Dennis is, you know, world time trial champion. He's a big deal. He is a big star of the sport. But if if indeed it was because, um, you know, the, the rift was over this equipment thing. It also kind of lets you know where he stands, where it's like, uh, hey, man, you may be big, but you're not that big, you know? You're not big enough that you can tell us uh, you don't want to use the bike. Use the bike. Yeah, well, he let them, let them know <laughs> what he thinks about thinks about their law. We'll see which bike he races on next year because uh, he's sticking out. He's sticking with Bideron. I was kind of surprised. You know, there were some rumors that he was going to uh, break the contract or the team was going to kick him off. But it sounds like he's set to race next year at Bideron Merida. They've got some interesting riders coming on. And, uh, you know, never never a shortage of stories here, Fred. That's why we love it. That's why we keep doing this because, you know, where else are we going to find these stories, you know, for covering, you know, City Hall down there in Boulder? Yeah, right. Yeah, so a couple hundred thousand dollar paycheck to go ride your bike you know that tends to that tends to patch things up make everybody happy again hey why don't we uh you know the, the check will clear and you will be happy so time trials coming up 
bunch of riders to follow. Uh, Road Race is coming up this weekend. Uh, we also have some pretty good stories going on in the, the junior categories. I'm really excited to see how Megan Yastrab does in the junior women's race. She is the phenomenon, the uh, female phenomenon in, in, in the U.S. junior categories who will be battling against um, – Magnus Backstead's daughter, Eleanor Backstead, who's a very powerful rider. That's going to be a good race. Um, I would also say follow the junior men's race. We have – and uh, the U.S. has an awesome – I say we like I'm on the team. Like, hey, this is this is our junior rider, Fred. He's 39. Uh, we, have a, we have a great set of junior guys, Quinn Simmons, uh, Michael Garrison, Ian Garrison's kid brother, um, Magnus – um, oh, shoot. The kid is uh, – his name's escaping me right now. We, Magnus Sheffield. Some really good riders to watch in the road races. So moving on to the elite road races, um, we have this very hilly um, course through the Yorkshire Dales for both the men and the women. Uh, the women are racing 150K. The men are racing – what is this? 285K? Um, yeah. And Hoodie, this is terrain that is well-known – to the riders because there's first of all the tour of yorkshire but also um the tour de france came here a few years back and had a uh, road stage that used a lot of this same course right yeah the way the the, the course starts the men's uh, road race starts in leeds ends in harrogate and that's the same it traces the same exact route that they used that year in the tour de france 2014 uh remember that year that's the year cavendish had that nasty crash crashed out of the tour because i think uh, cavendish's mother used to live in that town so he wanted us to win Got caught up in some crash, left with an arm injury. Uh, Marcel Kittle, our, our man with the, our favorite haircut, is no longer in the peloton. He won that stage, but it won't be a mass sprint on Sunday. We, that's a guarantee. That, at that distance, 285 uh, you know, Ks plus uh, set, uh, 14, seven laps, seven, seven laps on a 14K circuit. Say that fast three times. And, uh, you know, it's like any world's race, race of attrition. It's almost like I was thinking about this today. You know, what we love about the one-day races in the classics, right? It's like a, it's all or nothing. You know, you just do these attacks. You you know, you just you try, you roll the dice to win. And if you don't win, you know, you got that next race coming up in a couple of days. But the world championships is always raced a little bit differently. It's almost like a stage race in one day because it's all about holding back, holding back, holding back until you make that winning move at the end. So that's why, you know, I think the, the world championship race unfolds a little bit differently than the races we see like at the Tour of Flanders or, or Perrier Bay where you get these long attacks, guys attacking from 60, 80 Ks and they'll win a race where the world's a little bit different with the national teams. It's all about saving that spark for that final one or two laps in those final circuits that's when the world uh, world championships are won and it's a very different style of racing than in the one day classics sometimes you can argue maybe not as exciting because you know a long race like this i mean it's like hit siesta mode because not a lot's going to be happening until those last couple laps but those last couple laps pack in a lot of exciting action and just then everything happens because like in a one-day race, you do give everything, and there are guys when they take risk in that last lap or so to try to win, to try to upset the favorites, to try to surprise the pack. And the Worlds, for me, is one of the – despite all that stuff I just said, for me, one of my favorite races of the year. Yeah, I love it too because it's a big question mark. You have no idea how these riders 
uh, are going to do at the end of 200, I mean, 285K. The world is always the longest or one of the longest races of the year and it comes at the end of the season. So, you know, we talk about this with the Welts all the time. Like, guys have different forms. It's not like the tour where everyone is on peak form. Like, Worlds, there's a number of guys on peak form. There's people who are trying to get form. There's people who are three quarters peak form. But after 285K, maybe they only have one bullet to fire. Maybe they have a couple bullets to fire, but they just don't really... You know, they they know how they're going to perform at 250K, but not at 285K. So I think that's a good segue to talking about the favorites for this men's race. So I was going on various European um, sports betting, just gambling websites because I'm a degenerate gambler and I'm going to put all of my uh, this month's mortgage check on this race. You're going to go um, up to Blackhawk there, are you, Fred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex Howes, man, I'm I'm betting on you, buddy. Don't let me down. No, sorry. I'm sorry, Alex. I'm not betting on you. Um, but so the uh, the gamblers, who are the sharps, if you will, they have their odds out already. And uh, to no surprise, Mr. Matthew Vanderpool leads the odds ahead of Peter Sagan. Uh, uh, Julian Alaphilippe has the next highest odds. And then uh, Philippe Gilbert. And then it's kind of a grab bag after that. Um Vanderpool, I thought it was pretty interesting that he has such high odds. I mean, obviously, it's a selective course. It's punchy. The fu- uh, the finish line, it's like a 800K or 800, 80, 800-meter 800 drag to the line, uh, slight uphill rise. But he's a cyclocross guy. He's not a classics dude. 285K, to me, that's it's not as safe a bet as you might say if it was like uh, – Vatagam or Dwarves or, you know, some of these like shorter classics races that are 220K. Uh, am I am I smoking stuff right now, Hoodie? Is Vanderpool the odds on favorite or am, am I in the right to be a little bit skeptical? Pour a little cold water on our Vanderpool fire. Yeah, I think that uh, it's an interesting uh, observation because you're right, it doesn't have a lot of experience racing at this distance. But it's worth pointing out, as as kind of as I was saying before, you know, the first half of the world's race usually is not really that demanding. So it's not like they're going balls out for 285 k's. It really ramps up usually once they get into these circuits. That's when the pace picks up. You have a strong, very, very strong Dutch team that's going to be around Vanderpool, protecting him, keeping him out of the wind. Uh, there's some forecast for some rain. Of course, being a cyclocross guy, that's going to benefit him. He likes riding when it's sloppy out. And uh, you know, the other day we saw him racing in uh, Primus race over the weekend uh, in Benelux. 195k race and what did he do after uh you know he made that amazing attack and it just dropped everybody uh they got reeled in and ended up in a bunch sprint i think he finished somewhere in the top 15 whatever uh but what did he do after the race he went out and rode an extra 100k precisely for that reason because he thinks he needs a little bit extra kick in his legs to, to race that 285 because that is what makes you know this is like literally the sixth monument of the year right because of this distance that's what sets apart the monument that makes them so you know standard stand apart and be so prestigious as the as the long distance of the monument racing and this you know as long as a uh, uh, classic uh, uh, San Remo so uh, you know that is a huge factor at the distance but I think we've obviously saw him perform well at uh, Emstel Gold and uh, Flanders, which were much more demanding races, I think, in the intermediate part of those races than what we'll see on Sunday. So I think he has the legs to go the distance. But when you look at the favorites list, you're right. I mean, those guys stand out. But this this race has a lot of riders who could win. Uh, guys like Michael Matthews stand out to me. Uh, Greg Van Avermaet. 
you know, he, he's a guy, obviously, he won in Montreal. He's a he's a proven winner, and he's kind of that guy who has that experience. He'll just sit on the wheel the whole way, do like Valverde, just sit on the wheel, sit on the wheel, sit on the wheel, and get in a position to try to win. Uh, guys like Degenkolb, you know, he could he could be a smoky. He's been out, kind of just been under the radar almost all season, but he can win a big long race. Kristoff is a guy. It's not on a lot of people's uh, top 10 list right now, but I think he could actually have a very good race. And Matteo Trentin, he's obviously in, in very good form right now, and he'll be on that part of the Italian team. You know, the Italians, they used to be so good at the Worlds. They've uh, not, you know, since I think Bettini was the last Italian winner. I might be wrong on that stat, but it's been a while since the Italians, you know, really, uh, you know, performed at that top level at the Worlds because it's, you know, it, it's really a big deal for some of these nations. That's what I like about the worlds as well. It's like, you know, the Italians, man, it's a big deal to make the Italian team. It's a big deal to get on the Spanish selection or to make the Belgian team. You know, they left off uh, Steuven, our, our favorite chocolate maker. He didn't make the Belgian team and he's been on great form right now. So it's good to see these European traditional countries where, man, the world still count. These guys want to be in that race. They want to help their nation win. And they know if they're in a position to win, they'll have their chance. What do you make of Valverde as a world's contender? He has given some quotes this week, downplaying his chances, praising the Spanish team, um, but admitting that, you know, the course is not as selective as it was last year. There's no 22% climb coming um, right before the finish line to be his sort of launch pad. And it from the, from the sound of it, it sounds like he's expecting – a bigger bunch to come into the finish together. And, um, you know, if, if that happens, he doesn't really like his chances. What are, what are they talking about in Spain about, uh, grandfather Valverde's chances at winning at, at repeating? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, obviously Valverde revealed he was on great form at the, at the Vuelta, uh, him to finish on the podium. But I think, I think the reason why he's maybe downplaying his chances is you're right. You know, the, the course isn't really that selective. There'll be some fast guys in there, you know, guys that are going to beat him in a bunch sprint. You know, if he's in there with guys like Matthews or Christoph or Vanderpool or Sagan, you know, he, he, you know, Valverde at 39 is not going to beat those guys. You remember back in the day, you know, Valverde, you know, his world's history goes all the way back to the early 2000s. That's how long he's been around. And I remember back, uh, what was it? He was second uh, to Tom Bonin back in 2005 in uh, Madrid. So, you know, back in the day, you know, I would have said, yeah, Valverde is a, a five-star favorite. I just think he doesn't have that explosive kick that he had, you know, 75 years. Oh, wait, no, 35. Wait, no, 15 years ago. <laughs> Ages <laughs> uh, wonder everyone. Uh, I think that a storyline. I, I, I am writing a column right now that may or may not be finished by the time you great listeners hear this podcast. Because writing's hard, man, and deadlines. Who needs deadlines? But my column is about Vanderpool versus Peter Sagan and why this world champ, this world championships marks potentially a turning point in the um, unofficial. Uh, title of world's coolest cyclist and how Peter Sagan has held this role for the last, I don't know, almost decade or so. But Vanderpool uh, has the opportunity to usurp Peter Sagan and how, you know, Peter Sagan has had a good season. I mean, by by the standards of any pro cyclist, his season this year has been amazing. He won tour stages, won the green jersey. But within the context of Peter Sagan, this has been kind of a down year. Um, and it's strange to say that with such results but there was no monument when he was eh, 
He just wasn't the best guy at the classics. He made that front group at Roubaix, but Joubert and uh, oh, who was your German man? I mean, they were just they were sm- they were so much stronger. And so I wonder what uh, this world means for old Sagan and whether or not, you know, if let's say Vanderpool just just trounces Sagan in some type of sprint, whether that leads to some sea change in the pecking order of like who is sort of the, the, the coolest, most badass dude in the Peloton. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the cool kid on the block, you know, I think uh, Sagan has some competition from Remco. You know, he's emerging as this absolute superstar in, in Belgium. Uh, such a composed young man, 19 years old, and and handles all this pressure. Uh, you know, he's quite composed when he speaks to the media, and he's obviously very daring on the bike. And and that's what that's what Sagan used to do when he when he was coming up as a 19 to 20 year old. And and Sagan's a little bit older now; he's 29. He'll be 30 next year. I mean, it sounds young to me, but uh, you know, after being racing for so many years, you you kind of wonder. You know, it's it sometimes some of these things Sagan says. You just kind of wonder if his heart is still in it. You know, I think when he was younger, it just came easy and it was fun. He didn't have to probably work as hard to win races. I mean, we've seen over the last decade, just the whole level of the peloton has gotten so much higher. And, you know, Peter Sagan still absolutely at the top of the peloton. Even, even you said, quote, a bad season. He's still top three of almost every major race he targets. He kind of got sick. He was, said he was sick during the classics. Didn't really help him there. But, uh, you know, still by any measure, maybe subpar by Sagan. But, man, every other pro in the peloton would take Peter Sagan season but sometimes when you talk to Sagan he just doesn't seem like he really you know he, he's kind of just bored he's bored with all of us in the media he's bored with kind of uh, you know I think a lot of the, the show business stuff that goes with cycling a lot of the responsibilities maybe but he's still an animal on the bike I think you know once he gets clipped into the pedals he still loves to race and that's kind of what drives him and that's what always drives any professional cyclist and he actually he enjoys uh, interacting with the fans I mean it's quite genuine I think a lot of uh, you know a lot of those uh, stuff that you see online on social media with with, uh, with Sagan interacting with fans I'd, I'd say it's very genuine I think he very much enjoys that uh, playing up to fans popping wheelies and you know you'll see him at the, at the start of a Tour de France stage I mean he'll stop and he'll sign autographs and he'll uh, pose for selfies all the way down the line. And I tell you what, there's not many pros that actually do that. So uh, we'll see. I mean, I think Sagan is a fan favorite. He's, he's, he's great, for the, great for the sport. He's been great for the sport, a great ambassador for the sport. And he could become the first man ever to win four elite men's world titles. I would love to see that. And like, I, and like you said, I would love to see him um, to get a little happier in some of these uh, interactions with the media. Maybe that's what it's going to take. Win the world championships – Fourth time, you know, be able to say, ah, you pesky journalists, screw you. But here, I'm going to actually tell you that I'm happy because, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the comments that you read from these interviews with him, it's sort of um, it's almost it's very meta. It's like I am going to answer this in a way that doesn't give you the gratification of me actually allowing you to see what my feelings are on this or sort of like, yeah, it would be good, but it would be fine if I did. If I, it would be great to win, but it'd be fine if I didn't win. It's not that big a deal. It's only, you know, the race against the aliens to decide the fate of humanity or whatever. Yeah. Come on, Peter. We can can make a story out of that. Yeah. Um, So, all right, Hoodie, uh, put your money where your mouth is. What's your podium? Who's your picks for winning? What's your your final podium for the road race? Oh, man. You caught me off. off. I have to just pull something out. I think it's going to be bad weather. Yeah. 
maybe, maybe not as bad as, as in the as in the time trials, but some chance of rain, some cool weather, some wind. So that's going to make it a little bit harder and more selective than people like. That's going to eliminate a few people that don't like racing in that kind of weather. So I'm going to go with uh, the old school. Uh, Oh man, the Belgians and the Dutchies and maybe Michael Matthews and Vanderpool and the Sagan and Gilbert. Just take your pick. It's going to be some of those guys. Okay, well you got to give me a top three. That's if those guys are making it into this front group. It's rumbling into the finish. There's this 800 meter kick to the line. Who's coming across first, second, third? All right, I think it, yeah, you get a group like that coming in. I think it's going to be. Power versus drive versus experience. So I'm, I'm going to go. Vanderpool is the guy. He is. He just has all the momentum. I think he can win. Just if he if he's like he was in the Sprint Classics and what he's obviously shown in mountain biking and and some of the couple of road races he came back. He's just been, you know, his legs just have an extra spark in them that other riders don't seem to have. I say Vanderpool wins. He pulls it off. I say Christoph bridesmaid again just because he's a old, hard, ornery horse. And then third would be Matthews. Okay. I like it. Um, I that's a, that's a great pick. I'm going to go Gilbert because uh, I, Belgian, bad weather. He's feisty, looking good coming out of the Welta. Gilbert is my winner. I think second place is going to be Sagan and third place will be Alaphilippe. Watch, Alaphilippe's going to win now. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested, I'm interested to see how Alaphilippe does. Um, you know, he had such a great first half of the season and then he was the, you know, the wonder story of the uh, of the tour. You know, it's like which Alaphilippe is going to show up at, at this race? You know, he uh, he raced in Canada and he raced a little bit, you know, the Deutschland tour. But, you know, I'm not quite sure we're going to see the same Alaphilippe that we saw in the first half of 2000, uh, 2008, 19. We'll yeah. see. I'm with you. So with the women's race, it's 150K. It's a hilly course. It's uh, three laps around this punchy circuit. But everyone has their eyes on the same rider. Uh, look, there's a there's a whole list of favorites. Um, Corinne Rivera is having a very good end of season. She had a couple wins um, the other day. She's a punchy sprinter. She could do well on that finish. Uh, Chloe Dygert Owen. I mean, she has the power to ride away from everyone, and we might see a scenario like that. But really, everyone has their eyes on one rider, and that is Mariana Voss, because throughout 2019, Mariana Voss has showed us that she is back from the fatigue and the injury that kept her out at 2015, part of the 2016 season that she's been trying to get back from ever since. Um, she has been completely dominant. Four stages of the Giro. She just raced Tour de Lardèche, five stages in the overall at Lardèche. She won Trofeo Alfredo Binda. And she has won uh, in hilly terrain in races that are races of attrition that finish with a tough sprint. So when you look at this course and you look at the profile and the fact that it's an uphill sprint, uh, she won La Course that way. Um, it has Mariana Voss written all over it. And Hoodie, I gave Mariana Voss a call the other day. And we have a great interview with Mariana Voss about her season and about Worlds that I think um, we're going to let play out the podcast. So for the good listeners out there, thank you for, for listening. Uh, we are going to come at you a week from today. And you can see how completely, utterly wrong our Worlds predictions were. Um, but for Andrew Hood uh, this is Fred Dreiman to sign off and we're going to throw to uh, Mariana Voss I think you guys are going to enjoy this interview
So, Mariana, here we are uh, a few days out from the UCI World Championships in Yorkshire. It's a hilly course. It's a course that has a lot of punchy climbs. Um, when you look at it on paper, um, you know, you are definitely one of the riders that it caters to. I mean, what are your thoughts around this Yorkshire co- uh, course and how it caters to your strengths? Well, I, I, I think it suits me. Yeah. Um, if, if I look to the, to the characteristics, it's up and down, it's technical, it's never really, uh, never a lot of recuperation. You have, uh, this, um, not steady climb. So you, it's, yeah, I like that kind of courses. And, um, like I just said, also, uh, the Yorkshire race this uh, this spring, um, yeah, felt uh, I felt good at that course, and uh, that says something. Um, but uh, it's also a course that suits a lot of riders. Uh, uh, a strong sprinter can survive for long. Uh, a better climber can make can make a difference. So there, and all the riders in between. <laughs> um, our, our favorites on this, this kind of course. So it's, uh, it's definitely going to be an interesting uh, race for sure. And now the Dutch team comes in with multiple favorites. I mean, Anna van der Bregen is the defending champion. Annemiek van Vluten is one of the best climbers who can also time trial. Um, Chantal Blak, uh, won the worlds a few years ago. Um, will the Dutch team come in with a specific strategy built around you, or will it be more of a wait and see how the race plays out uh, type strategy? Um, yeah, of course, of course, that's an interesting question, and you'll you'll see in the race. But um, we want to use our numbers, so we want to use the strength of the team uh, in this championship. And, uh, that's how we, uh, anticipate this race and how we are going to enter this, this race. And with different riders that are able to win, you also have to, uh, yeah, be open for uh, different, um, scenarios. I think. I would think that would be not frustrating, but just challenging knowing that, um, Potentially, the other, the you know, the biggest rivals that you may have for winning the world championships are on your own team. Mm, no, it's just not frustrating or whatever. It's uh, we know we have a strong team and we know we want to win. And of course, uh, for myself, it would be great to to get another uh, world title. But um, yeah, we just want to race as good as we can and who gets in the best position uh yeah this rider get the chance and um yeah it's it's not frustrating or whatever it's like this is it i mean we we are strong and we all deserve a chance so um i don't think we we see that as a big problem when you look at the other national teams um which are the teams that stand out as some of the bigger rivals to the dutch team in the road race well, um, if I look to the, uh, to the favorites, then I think, uh, well, Great Britain with, of course, Lizzie Dagnan in her, uh, home race. She came back for this, this world championship. So, uh, she made her comeback for this. So I think she'll, she'll be really good. Um, Marta Bastianelli has shown she's in a really good shape and she can, um, uh, yeah, she can handle the, the harder courses and still have a really, really good sprint. 
Uh, Corinne Rivera is in good shape. She just won two stages in um, the Belgium Tour. Um, also a sprinter that can survive long. And, uh, uh, and yes, she will have good backup from her team as well. Um, then Australia doesn't have a real favorite, but always, always a very strong team. So, um, yeah, there's different teams. Uh, and then you have Poland with Kasia Niewiadoma, not, not the strongest country, probably, but individuals that are uh, able to uh, to do well. Also, Ashley Momampazio. So, it's all, all riders that uh, are potential uh, medal, medal candidates. <laughs> so, Mariana, a year ago when we connected on this phone call, we spoke a lot about how the 2018 season marked something of a comeback um, for your career. You know, you had very famously missed um, some of 2015 and 16 and 17. You had a number of injuries. But in the second half of 2018, things really started to, to click. Now, looking at 2019, I mean, you've had this amazing season. I'm looking at some of these results and winning La Course, four stages of the Giro, f- five stages in the overall at Lardesh, Alfredo Binda. I mean, some of these really big victories on the road. Um, where does the 2019 season then stand within your entire career what has been the significance of this year for you well i think uh, you're right i think 2018 the second half uh yeah marked uh, a start of getting back to my uh, uh to my best again and um yeah i, I think in 2019 uh, now at the moment my level is not far off my level from 11 and 12 um so that seems quite a while ago um but i'm I'm happy of course to be back at uh, this shape and to be able to uh train well to race and to recover and and build on again so i'm uh i'm, I'm pretty happy with this and um yeah i have to say um it's, it's difficult to to place it somewhere in in my um, career it's not that i have to win uh, this and that to to be happy or that i have to win this and that to have a good season or whatever but uh of course i'm i'm, I'm happy so far and uh world's still to come so um looking forward to that uh, in this uh, in this shape but um yeah it's uh, it has been a, a great season and um what i've been looking for over the last years um and what i thought i still had uh it seems to uh so when you look at the form that you've had throughout this season and you said it before you know you feel like you're very close to achieving the same level that you had at earlier parts in your career what do you attribute that to is it having race cyclocross is it being consistent in training what do you think this form has come from um, I think most most of it is just time and patience mm-hmm. and persistence. So um, I've had this season off in 2015, and my body needed the time to uh, to build again and uh, to get back to the balance and to be uh, able to train well and enough. And um, so, yeah. Um, the doctors then said already, yeah, it may, it might take a couple of years. And then I thought, well, <laughs> we'll see that. 
that must 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 I must be able to to go faster. But no, yeah, it definitely took me a couple of years. Um, but the persistence, the belief, uh, also, um, yeah, that the team backed me all the time. That was of course very very helpful. But then, yeah, just the time. So being able to steadily grow, being able to do more training, longer training again, and to recover from that, um, yeah, that helped me to get to this level uh, now. Well, Mariana, I really appreciate you making some time for me today and um, best of luck at the World Championships. And I will probably catch up with you at a race in 2020. Okay. All right. Have a good day. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.